All right, good morning, everyone. Why don't we stand and read from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let's pray. Lord, we want to give you praise and thanks for your word. And as as, uh, Peter (coughs) rightly taught us last week, this is a word that we can trust. It's a word that has been handed down from the prophets, spoken by Jesus, spoken by the apostles. And as Peter said, it's all on the same level playing field. Everyone has had the same, given the same authority and given the same message, and so we can trust it, handed down through the ages. And we're 2,000 years removed from the closest teaching, but it's still applicable to our lives today. Uh, these verses are not the easiest in the world to understand, so uh, give me the strength and power to your spirit to relay the truth to the church in a clear and concise way. Uh, not to get overloaded with uh, details, but just to get the main points out and to uh, speak truth in a way that honors you and is right and that also conveys the passage in a a correct way so we're not misled we look forward to our time together and just oversee our our uh, family here now in christ's name amen as you can see by the title of the sermon today it's blank the one thing I forgot to do this week is title my sermon. So I'll uh, come up with one later. So welcome everybody here, and I'm glad that uh, you made it with the time change. Uh, before we dive into our verses today, let me give you a quick reminder of what we covered last week, in case you weren't here, or you just need a refresher. Uh, last week's sermon was simply an overview, in which we covered the major themes introduced in the letter. Remember, we spoke of the warning of false teachers threatening to infiltrate the church. We spoke about the warning against the potential for Christians to commit apostasy, which is to walk away from the faith because they're in result of listening to the false teacher's message. Um, the idea that we are not to treat sin lightly as ungodly living does not go unpunished by the Lord. And we so lastly spoke about our, our need to be diligent in the Christian walk. God gives us the tools necessary for spiritual victory, but we have to apply and use those tools on a day-to-day basis. So that was last week's message, uh, which was a general overview, and today we're going to be much more specific as we tackle the first four verses. And today's message, really, we're going to learn about, from Peter about the balance between what God's role is in our Christian walk and, and bringing about salvation and maintaining it, and his power at work in us, and what our role is in response to him. So there's God's role and our role, and these have to balance together. And those of you uh, who've been part of these kind of discussions before, it's, a really, it's fun to get into these kind of debates. How much is God at work? How much are you at work? 
And uh, not only can it be fun, it can even be stressful, depending on who your opponent is and uh, what side of the camp they, they, they uh, come from. But anyway, we're here for unity, not for debate. And uh, <laughs> well, we can debate, but we have to do it in love, right? So here we go. So I want to just tell you, though, that this theme of God's role and our role in the Christian walk is, is really prevalent throughout the whole Bible. And I want to show you like two things. Two fun passages. These are kind of the conundrums we have to work through. So look at first, sorry, Colossians 1.29. This is Paul speaking. He says, for this purpose also I labor. So me as a person, I labor. Striving according to his power. Which mightily works within me. So there's this contrast between what God's doing in his life. And how he's affecting his ministry with his power, but he's the one laboring. So figure that one out. Another one to figure out is Galatians 5.16. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So the Spirit is in you, giving you guidance, but you're the one that has to walk. It's up to, the Spirit doesn't walk, you walk. So again, you have this tension in the New Testament all through it. And so we have this today in our verses as well today, and I'm going to help, try to help you bring out, or bring out, the balance between God's power at work in us and our role in response to Him. So let's begin by reading verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now much can be said about this opening verse, but the key I want to focus in on is the phrase, to those who have received the same faith of, as ours. When in Okotoks, in our culture, you might think, that's no big deal. In the Jewish culture, and based on who he's writing to, Peter's writing to, as Gentile Christians, this is a big statement. It's a very big statement, and I want to help you see why. So again, this is Peter, an apostle, who's Jewish, writing to a primary Gentile audience. Now the history between Gentile-Jewish relations in the Old and New Testament, especially the early church, were not always good. They weren't always good. See, one of the biggest issues the early church had to face was the acceptance of the Gentiles into the community of believers that were Jewish Christians primarily in the beginning. There was this issue of whether the Gentiles were actually part of the people, the covenant of the people of God. And even after Pentecost fell, when the Holy Spirit came and came on to the Jews first and they became Christians, the apostles even realized that, um, or didn't realize that the Gentiles were included in this plan of salvation. They thought, it's only for us, the Jews. They had no idea uh, that Jesus died, not only, like, not for political reasons, but for sin, and that is sins of the Gentiles as well. They thought it was just a Jewish thing. And this is, proof is actually found at first in Acts chapter um, 11, or sorry, chapter 10. This is when uh, God had to give Peter a vision uh, concerning his potential to meet a man named Cornelius. He gave him a vision of showing food, uh, all foods being declared clean to symbolize the fact that Gentiles were now clean in God's eyes. It took a vision to Peter for, uh, from God to help him understand that the Gentiles were included. And so he eventually went to Cornelius' house and Cornelius became a, a Christian and so did his household through this, uh, or, yeah, through this whole process. Peter, again, was used by God in Jerusalem at the council, uh, uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. This is a pivotal place in the church history. Um, the whole argument of the Jerusalem Council was, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
And Jewish missionaries had come into Antioch and places like that and were teaching Gentiles that it was not only faith in Jesus that made you a Christian, but it was observance of the law of Moses, uh, things like circumcision, Sabbath, and so on, that made you a Christian as well. So it's Jesus plus law. Peter's words turned the whole thing upside down. Look at the words he gave in Acts, um, Acts 15.11. After the whole defense about what, what it was to be a Christian, Peter says this, But we believe that we, Jews, are saved through the grace of the Lord in the same way as they also are. I should have underlined uh, <laughs> they, not way. There you go. Two errors this week in my prep. Right? So Peter says this, We Gentiles are saved through grace. Sorry, we Jews are saved through grace, and so are the Gentiles. And that's a massive, massive statement. And now you see the significance of Peter's opening remarks. When he says, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. Ours is the Jewish Christians, the apostles, and he's speaking to Gentile churches. And what he's doing is he's basically learned from the Lord years back, like 20 years removed. Uh, with his experience with Cornelius and at the Acts Jerusalem Council, and he now knows that these people are an equal playing field in terms of receiving uh, uh, adoption into the family of God. And the cross was for them as it was for the Jewish people. So really, to summarize it, Peter was saying this, that the Gentiles are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And that's an incredible opening statement to these people because it would be an inclusive embrace type of comment. But I, you know, I think it's important to understand these things. Um, always go into their context before you come into our context. Because when he says to those who see the same type as ours, you and I go, oh yeah, that's me. But you think nothing of it. Because in our view, to us, to be a Gentile and be a Christian is normal. That's not what, that's not normal back in those days, right? So it's really, really important. But what I want to point out that's probably the most significant in there, this verse is how faith is defined. He says, you've received a faith of the same kind of ours. What is faith? Well, he defines it here. It's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I, was, I, I came across uh, two questions uh, this week that were really good. And uh, it was outside of preparing for the sermon. But this questionnaire had two questions on it. It says, if you died tonight and stood before God, do you know where you would go? Yes or no? But here's the really cool question. The second question was this. If you stood before the Lord after you died, and He said to you, by what right should I allow you into my presence? What would your answer be? So you're standing before God, and He says... Do you think you have the right to go to heaven? And you say, yeah. I said, by what right do you have the ability to enter into those gates or doors or whatever, right? The way we always picture it. Okay? What's your answer? The answer that we have to give is, God, I get to come in by, because of the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. I have nothing to offer. No works, no merit, no ethics. No, no rituals, nothing. I come into glory based on the merits of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he did in the cross for me. This is important because Peter's teaching us something completely 
counter-cultural to Okotoks, Alberta, and Canada. We teach that you, the, the, if uh, the rituals established by the church, that if you perform them, you get into glory. We get taught that we get in by our own moral standards and our own sense of right and wrong. We get in by what a religious de leader declares over our lives or what we declare over our own selves in our lives. And Peter's saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. Christianity, to be go to be, the right to enter into heaven and to be with the Lord is founded not in the church, not in, the, not in yourself, is founded on the merits and the righteousness of Jesus. To his death on the cross, his righteousness to cover and atone for our unrighteousness. And of course, this is God's role. This is God's work in bringing us to salvation. We don't do anything to offer him. It's he, he's the one who initiates the plan of salvation. It's the work starts with him. But we do have one little role to play initially. And we pick this up actually in verse 1. To those who have received a faith. You and I don't get that forgiveness and that right to be with God based on osmosis. Right? We don't, uh, we don't, he doesn't force it upon us. We have to receive it. We have to receive it. Now, Peter doesn't define what that reception looks like here, but if you, were, if you substitute the word faith, you do well. If you, you, receive, you receive it by faith. So, we've gone through this over and over in our church. What does it mean to have faith in the Lord? How do you receive that initial uh, um, offer of forgiveness to God? How do we receive that? Well, it's the ABCDs. You acknowledge you have sin in your life. You believe that Jesus did something about it, that his righteousness died, he died with his righteousness to basically atone for your unrighteousness. His sin, his, his body and blood covers your sin before the Lord. C, you confess your sin. You name, you name it and claim it. <laughs> Different use in the Christian uh, or the prosperity, the prosperity gospel. And you, D, you uh, dedicate your life to him as a response to him. That's how we receive the faith. One additional thought, though, before we leave verse 1. You notice how Peter defines Jesus here? He says, by the righteousness of God and Savior. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not just Savior here. Peter says he's God here. Do you see how significant that is? You see, the belief that Jesus is God is actually what separates Christianity from every other religious system in the planet. That's what separates us from every single person who uses his name. Islam uses the name of Jesus. Mormons use the name of Jesus. Jehovah's use the name of Jesus. Everyone, a lot of, a lot of belief systems use the name of Jesus. But we, no one declares him to be God except the Christian faith, like Peter says here. I remember speaking to you last week. I don't know if it was in the dialogue of the sermon. I said, a guy gave me a clue on how to, to witness to, to uh, people about their belief systems. And instead of getting entangled in all the different ways of looking at uh, how we di think differently, just to focus on the, the nature of who Jesus was. So 
uh, was it, uh, I forget what night it was this week, I think it was Sunday of last week, I hear the doorbell ring. I go up there and it's two uh, Mormon girls on my step and asked me if I've heard of the Book of Mormon, I said yes. And uh, they said to me, they asked me a couple questions and I just stopped them. I said, I can tell you right now the difference between you and I. I said, I, you and I both use an image Jesus, but I believe he's God and you don't. And they stared at me, didn't say anything. And I said, so, and I said, nothing you are going to say to me is going to convince me otherwise. And so, and then, and then I just waited and then they started, they said, okay, thank you. And basically walked away from the steps. So what was interesting is they didn't invite themselves in, push me any further. I just said, he is God, you will not convince me otherwise. And the conversation was over. Now, if they would continue to push me, then fair enough, I'd keep going. But for, they removed themselves from the conversation on that one statement. The old me would have been entangled for two hours in that conversation and I basically got myself going in circles. Well, and this is of course what Peter's saying. All right, so with the reception of faith, God gives us two gifts. He grants us two things. And the first one is found in verse 2 and 3. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The moment you and I receive the same faith as, as the apostles and these Gentiles, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you and I are granted something supernatural. We are granted God's divine power. Okay, so the question would be then is, what is this power? And, and, and who, or who is this power for, for, for a different word? Well, we can, we can learn something from Acts chapter one. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples before he leaves for heaven after the resurrection. He said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even parts of the remote, or even to the remotest parts of the earth. You'll receive divine power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Without the indwelling of the Spirit in somebody, the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's the difference between being a Christian and a non-Christian. One has the Holy Spirit given to them at the reception of Jesus Christ by his merits alone. The person who has not come to that place does not have the Holy Spirit in their lives. But once you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have the divine power. You have divine power. And it's, the Spirit is given to you and I to live out the Christian life in two key areas. One, we are to, he's granted us everything pertaining to life, number one, and godliness, number two. Now the word life is used two different ways in the Bible. It can refer to present life, like life now, or it can re refer to eternal life, life in the, here, in the afterlife. Now Jesus uses both life terms in his Gospels when he's teaching, and you have to make a distinction. When's he talking eternal life, and when's he talking about life now? And... Um, so it's really hard for me to know actually which one Peter has in mind here. Does he have one more in mind than the other, or is it both? And to be honest, the commentators I read, I had read about three or four sources, were not helpful. 
that all either. These guys are scholars and that they were sort of landing in, an, in a way that was trying to convince me otherwise to go one way or the other. But regardless of this, I don't think it really matters which one it is. Because if, it's if, it's, if His Holy Spirit comes in to grant us power for life now, then that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's good. If, it's all of, if all of His divine power is just to help us with abundant life in, in, in getting to heaven, well, that's good too. So whether He, whether he um, gives us this power for life now or life in the, in the afterlife, to me is irrelevant. The point is that the Spirit gives us this power. But what's important for sure is godliness. You see, godliness has to do with our behavior and conduct now, not in an afterlife. That's about life now. The Greek word is actually devotion or piety, which is really another way of saying holiness or virtue. It's the same word occurs in chapter 2, verse 9, in reference to Lot's behavior in contrast to those in Sodom and Gomorrah around him. So Lot is defined as godly, the same root word as godliness. And those around him in Sodom and Gomorrah were described as indulging in the flesh and despising authority. So we can see this is describing behavior here. So Peter says this, it's through the presence of the divine power in you from the Holy Spirit that you will have be granted everything you need to living out a life of godliness here on this earth now. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes life doesn't feel that way. I don't know if I had a, if I had a video camera on my life after a year, you'd say, man, Andrew's got that godliness nailed down in every category of life at every moment that goes his way. So I think it would be important, though, to help you understand how the Holy Spirit then works in our lives and how this practically plays out. Because it's God's role to give us the Holy Spirit, and it's God's role to use the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we have a work to do as well, and that's how we respond to the Holy Spirit. I'll give you two ways, then, that God gives us the tools to the Holy Spirit to live out this life successfully, but what happens when we don't? Who's at fault and what's going on here? Okay, this balance again. One of the key texts is in John 14, 26. Jesus says this, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So watch this now. How does the Holy Spirit work in a believer's life according to this passage? He brings to remembrance not new truth. He brings to remembrance old truth, not like old truth that was stated in the past. So the disciples are going through life and they're like, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do here. And the Holy Spirit goes, remember what Jesus said? Oh, I know what to do now. Right? This is why in the Christian life, he gives us everything we need to pertain to godliness. Because if we have the scriptures and we know them, the Holy Spirit can use the scriptures when we're in situations to help us make decisions for life. I think of it like a filing cabinet. The more folders you have in the filing cabinet regarding the, the category of life that you know about, the, that, that's, that's a data bank. If you have one folder in there, that's not much. If you have 20 folders, you have a lot. So the more you know of the scriptures, the more the Spirit can use to help you walk through life. So it's up to us. So it's God gives us the Spirit to, to, uh, to enable us to understand how to live out the life, and, and, and it gives us the guidance through it. But we have the, the role to know this. And that's why a lot of young Christians make a lot of mistakes. It might not even be a heart issue in terms of like desire for the Lord. It's just a lack of knowledge issue. And so the Spirit doesn't bring to remembrance the things. 
And as you get wiser and older and, you, and you, this becomes part of your fabric, God can use the scriptures to bring to remembrance to help you through life. Galatians 5 is another one. This is not to do with the scriptures. This is in another category, category called character. Look at what the spirit, how the Spirit works. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. See what's going on here? You've got the Spirit in you, leading you towards character. He's not leading you to a new job. He's not leading you to a, a new wife or leading you to a new husband, or to leading you to have children, or whatever. He's leading you in character. So when you go to get angry, he says, Don't, like, I want you to uh, be patient here. Uh, when you go to uh, be uh, aggressive, he says, I want you to be peaceful. And so on and so forth. So the Spirit is always leading towards character. Now just so you know, I'm not saying he can't lead you towards a new job and stuff, but how he does that is another discussion for another time. But this is not... Uh, location and vocation leadings. This is character leadings into love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, and against those things there's no law. The problem is when you get saved, you have the flesh in you still. You have the spirit in you, but, you're, but inside you is still this fleshly nature that wants to sin. And so what's happened now is you have this battle. When, a, when an issue comes up that challenges you, the spirit <laughs> says, you can go my way, but your flesh says, I want you to go your old way. And you have a choice about who do you love more, yourself or the Lord. And I, I, there's no other way to say it. Who do you love more, yourself or the Lord, in those situations? And those, as, as we mature and become godly, we will choose the Spirit's way more and more and more. And that's why he says you crucify the flesh with its passions. You nail it to the cross and you bury it in. And a sign of maturity in the Christian walk is that we start to look more like Christ as we lead the Spirit, follow the Spirit and less like our old nature. So why has God given us everything to, to living a life of godliness in a successful, mature way? Because the Spirit is 100% accurate in leading you into character. If you choose not to go His way, though, you'll live out the old flesh. And so you're responsible for what, the way you respond to the Spirit, but God's given you everything you need to, to combat that sin. Does that make sense? Okay. So these are the ways the Spirit leads in those two categories. He brings to remember scriptures and He changes your character. So God has done everything possible to give you a victorious Christian mature life. But it really comes down to who do you love more? Who do you love more? If you've fallen asleep, let me wake you up with this because I know you'll really appreciate Superman. The, the life of the Spirit is similar to Superman. Superman has an internal power from an external source. Where does Superman's power come from? The S-U, the sun. Where does our power come from? The 
That's Owen. The sun. Okay? Superman's power comes from the sun. Our power comes from the sun. It's an external source given to us. But we both have an internal weakness. What's Superman's weakness? Right. What's our weakness? The F L E S H. Good. Very good. You guys are great at falling. <laughs> right. The flesh. We both have weaknesses. And here's the thing the spirit is present in us just like the power from the sun is present in Superman all the time. But the Superman didn't always access that power. Remember, he wears street clothes and sometimes things would happen and he wouldn't act because he didn't want to actually like show that he was Superman. But when he took off the, the Clark Kent clothes, he would fully act and, and, and live out that power. So sometimes too, we, we have the spirit in us, we don't always access it. <laughs> we don't always access it, but it's in us to do so. But again, he has a weakness luring him away from his power, and so do we. Now, every analogy breaks down to some degree, because you're going to say, yeah, but it's not, you know, like, work with me here on the, with the, because I know you're awake now. All right, let's finish with this. The second gift that is granted to us is found in verse 4. For by these now, these, the these he's referring to is uh, Jesus' glory and excellence, which, which are his characters, his virtues. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let me ask you a question. When someone makes you a promise, what are they doing? When someone makes you a promise, what do you expect? And what are they doing to you? Pledge? That's good, yeah. Okay, anything else you want to add to that? Or is that sufficient for y'all? Y'all. <laughs> Asking for your faith in them? Okay, yeah. Just setting an expectation. Expectation, yeah. Let me ask you this is the promise primarily future or present? If I make your promise, I'm like, what's, what's the context of the promise? Future, okay. But it does have present, it has a present reality, but it's primarily for the future. So you guys are bang on. When someone makes you a promise, what they're doing is giving you their word that something certain will happen in the future. It's their word. They're good for their word. So promises have a present reality now, because what they do is they give you hope for the future, right? I make you a promise, it excites you because you're like, oh man, cool, I fight, I, I've got something to look forward to, so it's hopeful. But you don't get it now. You don't get it now. You know what's amazing? I learned this from Dick Lucas, uh, the probably most influential person outside of Dan in my life for like, like just sort of spiritual truths. He said this in his sermon on this same subject. He says, in all of, in all of Greek literature, in all of Greek literature, with the exception of one source, you find humans always making promises to the gods and never the other way around. I promise I'll never do that. I promise I'll never do that. I promise I'll never do that. <laughs> right? In the scriptures, and you enter the Hebrew world, not the Greek world, you find God making promises to men. Isn't that unbelievable? Can you think of it that way? Noah. Noah, I will never flood the world again, ever. 
and I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky as a sign that, of my promise to never flood the world again. Abraham, if you leave your country, I promise to give you land. I promise to make you the nation of Israel. I promise to give you a son, even though you're barren. I promise to bless and protect you. Yeah, but God, I don't have any of those things now. You're right, but I'll give them to you. Okay, God, I trust you. And off it goes. Hebrews 11, the entire chapter dedicated to a theme of men and women who are made promises by God to them that never received them now, but gave them hope for the future. The promises here are not defined. But based on the context, I'm going to suggest that all of these promises are based around the gospel message. So you can substitute the word gospel message for, for um, promises. Why would I say that? Because of what the promises produce in us in verse 4. He gave you these magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruptions within the world. It's a promise related to, to escaping the corruption of the world. It's a promise relating to partaking in divine nature. These have to be to do with what Jesus did on the cross. You, without his crucifixion and resurrection, you don't get his divine nature, nor do you escape the corruption of the world. You can't. Neither now, nor in the future. How do you receive the divine nature now? You receive his Holy Spirit now. But you don't get the full divine nature in terms of what you're, what you're going to get in glory. You know why? Because in glory, there's a resurrected body you're going to get. You don't have the body now. You're going to get that. Right now, you don't escape the corruption of sin. Because you still have to battle it every single day. Revelation tells you in heaven, there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering. And it talks about this perfect life like with God in heaven. So the removal of effects in this fallen world, we haven't escaped them now, but we have escaped them in some degree in that we've been given the, the, the equipment through the Spirit to battle the effects of sin in many ways. We've been, able, we've been given the power to resist sin in our lives, which we never had before when we didn't have the Spirit. So again, we're missing some key ingredients, uh, both in divine nature and escaping the world's corruption, that are uh, now that we're going to fully experience in the future. And so it's just, a, it's, but they're beautiful promises. Because he started the process now, but we're going to get that entirely in heaven. God has granted us these gifts. It's his work. It's his work, but we have work to do as well. We have to respond to him. To, so he, to, he, he starts the whole initiation of salvation. But we have work to do in response to Him, and we're going to get in more to that, what our role is in maintaining and securing that position in God next week as we go into verses 5 through 9. But I want to leave you with one verse. This came to me uh, yesterday morning as I was doing my last touch-ups, uh, besides my title, <laughs> uh, on, the, on the sermon. And uh, this was unbelievable, these verses. The, the, uh, Paul and Titus encapsulates everything in Peter in four verses. Check this, check this out. My eyes, I gotta get closer. All right. 
Okay, so all the red, all the red inserts are Peter's words from his text, and everything else is originally Paul's words to, the, to, uh, to Titus. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures, which is the corruption of the world. Verse 4. Our lives were full of envy, evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. So back to verse 1, by His righteousness. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Divine power, divine nature. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence, the promise of hope, because you have confidence now, that we will inherit eternal life, the promise for the future. Isn't that incredible? That's, I think that's just the coolest, coolest ever. This Titus 3 summarizes everything I've been trying to say for 40 minutes. Okay, what are some lessons for today? There's a lot of lessons. I could have had a probably about eight, nine, these, but worded them differently. So I'm just going to try to encapsulate some of the things I said, but there's a lot more that could be said. Number one, to be a Christian, one must recognize that their acceptance before God is solely based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's important in our culture. I'm, I'm going to start doing this like in a loving way, in a gentle way. If someone says, Oh, like, uh, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Oh, so, oh, yeah, cool. Like, oh, I'm a Christian, too. Next question from my mouth. Oh, that's great. Can I ask you something? Can you just share your testimony a little bit with me? Like, by what basis do you base your, like, like, just curious, like, what's your definition of Christianity? By what rights, like, do you consider yourself a Christian? And the answer will, 99% of the time, will not be this. It's an evangelistic tool. It'll be based on their own credibility of some kind or the church they go to. Alright, lesson number two. When we become Christians, Jesus grants us both His divine power and nature through the presence of the Holy Spirit. I have to say that because it doesn't tell you, he doesn't, Peter doesn't use the name Holy Spirit in this entire book. So we have to like dig deeper by using the New Testament to interpret how this works. But it's through His power and through His nature that it's the presence of the Spirit that gives us both these things. Third lesson. The Holy Spirit's presence within us gives us all we need to live a life of holiness pleasing to God. Through the Scriptures. He uses the Scriptures and He leads us into character. If we don't live a, a life pleasing to God in terms of holiness, it's because of our, our lack of knowledge in the Scripture. And it could be because of our own, but primarily because of our choosing of the flesh. And I'm guilty as you are in these categories that there are times when I love myself more than I do the Lord. Finally, God's promises to us contain both present and future realities. God's promises give us hope now, but they will not be fully realized until we get to glory. But when we see how faithful His Word has been through the entire, through thousands of years, we need to bank on that when we're going through struggles, to realize that, the, that He will be good for His Word in the future. That's what a promise is. It's a certainty, a certainty for the future because of the reliability of the source of the person's Word. 
And when you and I go through doubts in our Christian walk, as we will, I don't know if God's real, I don't know if Christianity is all it's cracked up to be. We all have, I have those two. I may leave this church, but I go through the same questions that you do. But really, when it shakes down to the thing, the, the answer is always the same. Where God's promises to you trustworthy. And you look through the generations and you think, where else am I going to go? He's been faithful for generation after generation after generation, never not fulfilled one of his promises.